What's up, everybody, and welcome to episode number 55 of Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries for Wednesday, July 12th, 2017. And, uh, well, I was going to say we're back to our regularly scheduled program, but we're really not because we have a very special interview later on this episode. But before all that, I'm joined by my steadfast co-host, Mike. How you doing, Mike? Doing all right. Doing pretty good. Um, just, uh, hanging in there, dealing with, uh, absolutely bullshit copyright strike on my YouTube channel from Warner Brothers, which I like to call Warner Fuckers. <laughs> Warner Fuckers Entertainment is a fuck you in the ass with no lube. Mike, you, uh, you got a nickname for everything, man. I tell yeah, you what. I do. Um, and, uh, it was for my review of Kong Skull Island, and for some reason, some... Guy manually detected the video and removed it and uh, gave my channel a copyright strike. So I sent an email to the email provided, uh, the legal uh, email address. I've got no response back from that. This is the first time with my channel that I've dealt with a copyright strike where I'm I'm just waiting. I'm just stuck there in like purgatory, just waiting for a response from the person who gave me the copyright strike. Before, I was able to get in contact with people and actually get them to resolve it. This one seems like since it's Warner Brothers, but I also dealt with Universal before. So, and I've read things that Warner Brothers is notorious about stuff, but it's just frustrating to me because my video had absolutely no copyrighted material in it at all. And so when that kind of stuff happens and you get a video taken down and you get a copyright strike... And you have to go to copyright school. YouTube has a stupid thing. Oh, yeah. Have to I, had to, multiple yeah choice I had questions. to do that for the Unsolved Mysteries And it's for video. a video that has no copyrighted material in it whatsoever. That's pretty upsetting. And Do you, you know, think it was one of those, uh, one of those uh, YouTube, part, uh, YouTube partner or YouTube superstar guys, that, that program that rewards little ass kissers who go out and manually No, flag? no, 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 no. Like I said, it's Warner Brothers. It's Warner Brothers Entertainment. Oh. Some, they said it was manually detected. So that means some guy whose job it is, his job is to go on the internet and look for videos that might be copyright infringing. Just and me- I guess he just saw my video, saw Kong, Kong Skull Island in the title. It was like a uh, movie and just thought, oh, copyright. I, I don't know what went through this guy's head. So I got to wait like 10 to 14 days um, on the 21st. Uh, of actually, yeah, it's a little bit less than 10 days now. On the 21st of July, if I do not get a response back from Warner Brothers, proving that they're going to take legal action against me to keep the video off YouTube, the video will go back up. I can, so I fingers can, fingers crossed, I don't get any legal action against me because I don't have a dime. This is, I can one up, but I can one up your copyright strike there, Mike. Uh, I got, I have a claim. Against myself for one of my YouTube videos. <laughs> I did a YouTube video uh, about my behind the scenes making of my album where I kind of talk about like how I made my Dancing yeah. with Ghosts album. And I used my songs, okay? So through this website uh-huh. called TuneCore, 
that's how a lot of bands get their music on Spotify and iTunes and all the other music stores. And there's an option where you can pay a little extra and you can get your shit claimed uh, by two or like you can get your stuff monetized through YouTube via TuneCore. So anytime someone Uh uses my song, I, I get I can claim it or it gets claimed automatically and I get the revenue. So on yeah, that's pretty so cool. on my YouTube channel, I do a video, use my songs, and I get a copyright claim from TuneCore for my own music. <laughs> and I tried responding saying, "Hey, dipshits, this is my music. That's my TuneCore account." You know, and and <laughs> I got an email today saying, "Yeah, uh, TuneCore hasn't." isn't going to release this claim it's still being claimed i'm like oh my god i'm fi- i'm i'm fighting myself in this battle <laughs> so as as you can see guys uh, me and mike uh we get into a lot of legal problems often so if, if any lawyers out there want to advertise on the podcast in exchange for some of your services <laughs> we uh we run into situations quite often where we need legal advice or legal help so uh yeah that's a thing so, um, in unsolved mysteries related stuff, I just want to mention this kind of really bad flaw on Unsolved Mysteries' new website. They did a great job uh, revamping it, uh, unlike the reboot that they did with Dennis Farina. Uh, it looks a lot better. They got rid of the Unsolved More Mysteries thing that they did. But they need to fix something, and that is their search bar. Their search bar is fucking broken <laughs> it is so bad you click on the search bar and you t- try to type something in and automatically whatever you type in you can't even type in a name i can't even type in for example amelia Earhart. it won't even let me do that i'll click on the search bar and it'll just automatically search for nothing yeah it's, <laughs> it's glitchy it sucks they need to they need to fix that they tried to make it look sleek and new and shit and it's 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 really glitched out um, I don't want to spend too much time talking about the Unsolved Mysteries search I know, bar. I know, I know. Exactly. I, I just thought it would be a if, kind of fun. If anyone out there is listening quick. in uh, Burbank, California, get your team on that <laughs> ASAP. Um, so I know this is totally stupid uh, because nobody can actually respond in le- real time now, but I'm going to ask anyway. So what did you guys think about having Robin Warder from the Trail Rent Cold? Uh, there's that weird Swedish accent again. What did you guys think about having the Trail Rent Cold podcast on our pod? Anyway. That was a pretty. Uh, that was pretty cool. I, I, I will say. I want to thank Robin yet again for com- coming on yeah. last week. That was that was a lot of fun. So if you got that was fun. If you guys liked that um, and, and you like the collaboration stuff, uh, you can let us know on our Facebook group, which is facebook.com, uh, and then in the search bar, search "Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries," and you'll find. And then sur- go to the groups tab. Uh, or you can like our fan page, which is facebook.com slash Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries. Let us know what you thought about that collaboration. And if you want us to uh, collaborate with more uh, true crime podcasters, I will certainly be happy to reach out to them. Uh, our plays look like they've gotten a, a, a little bump since he's been on there. So that's cool. Um, so, yeah. Um, we also have a Patreon. Uh, oh, yeah. And... I also I, I just recently uh, put a bonus segment up there where I discuss the cases of the Lucky Choir in Nebraska and uh, the case of the Brayman Hollow Road Shooter uh, that is available for patrons uh, with the ten dollar and above tier. 
And that's so if you haven't supported the podcast uh, yet, or if you want to, go to our Patreon. And that's patreon.com slash uncovering unexplained mysteries. Uh, and I am planning on posting a lot more bonus content on there. I need to start carrying my weight. God, yeah, you do, Mike. Jesus Christ. A lot more. Mike just shows up. I do, <laughs> I do everything else. <laughs> Mike shows up. And he looks pretty for the camera that doesn't exist because this is a podcast. And um, you know, I'm I got I'm I'm that uh, Vishnu uh, with all the spinning plates going on. That's me. But not for long because Mike's going to be doing a bunch of Patreon stuff. So there you go. Mike, are you there? Yeah, I am. Yeah, you, I am. Are you crying what? or are you? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> <laughs> um, trying to think of anything interesting's so. happened in my life uh, the past week. Honestly, I don't really want to like take up too much more time because I want to get to this uh, this interview that uh, some of you guys are probably just going to skip right to and ignore all this crap, which I don't blame you. Um, I had an, actually an opportunity uh, through one of our listeners to um, get in touch with Donna Parks, who I would imagine used to be named Donna Dickens, sister to. Larry Dickens. Larry, of course, was in, featured in the Texas Most Wanted segment on Unsolved Mysteries. Uh, sadly, but most notably, what people remember from that case is that Matthew McConaughey, that was his first paid acting role. Um, I say sadly because somebody was murdered, you know, and, and it's really like like that should be remembered. It's pretty trivial. Right. Matthew McConaughey, you know, I, I get it because, you know, he's more known. But at the end of the day, you know, somebody lost their life. Uh, family lost a loved one. So I was actually able to talk to the sister who was actually featured in the segment. She was interviewed and everything. And, you know, I, I try to get as many people from the show uh, Unsolved Mysteries on here as possible. We've had uh, quite a few, well, not quite a few. We've had, I don't know, uh, what? Handful. handful. Yeah, a handful of guests in the past from the actual show. One of these days, if we're not able to do the podcast, I'm just going to make a big compilation of just the interviews that I've done, and you can listen to those all in one episode. But um, yeah, so later on this podcast, look forward to the Donna Parks interview, and she is such a sweet and strong, emotionally strong lady. Um, yeah, it was probably one of my more favorite interviews, just because how easy she was to talk to. Um, but before, but before we get into that, we will get into the main meat and potatoes of this um, this whole uh, casserole here. I, I was looking for a food, and I couldn't really think of a good one, so I went with casserole. Casserole's fine. I mean, broccoli casserole's good. <laughs> Nothing, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't have anything to say about uh, Josh's uh, casserole fetish. I don't have a fetish. I, I never said anything about fetish. Now people are going to think I have some weird, uh, um, you know, um, scene from American Pie where they, he sticks his member in the apple pie thing, <laughs> but with casseroles. Stick it right yeah, in the casserole. Yeah. No. Uh, we're going to be talking about Amelia Earhart because um, there's recently been an update. Uh well, yeah, we're going to be talking about Amelia Earhart, but first we'll talk about another uh, disappearance, another uh, missing persons case. And this case is the case of Keith Reinhardt. Now, this is a case from season two on Amazon Prime, 
And I wanted to discuss this case because I thought it was pretty interesting. You had this guy who was going through a midlife crisis. He goes in and moves to this small town, tries to set up a business there. Uh, there's something that happened with the guy who used to own the business. He goes missing. They find his body in the mountains somewhere. This guy is also trying to write a book, and his uh, book is based on this guy's sudden the guy used to own the place that he's renting for his business. Uh, he's uh, his book is based on that guy and what happened. And uh, art imitates life in this instance because he ends up uh, Keith Reinhardt ends up disappearing. As yeah, well. when I was doing my um, when I did my comparing the uh, original Unsolved Mysteries video to uh, the revamp with Dennis Farina, um, I actually was able to find uh, a clip off Unsolved Mysteries or off of YouTube of uh, an intro to an old Unsolved Mysteries episode. I didn't know which one it was, but this was one of the stories that they teased. And they said, uh, you know, two best friends. One was writing... um, a story about the other's disappearance and then he ended up disappearing and for the longest time I could not find that segment that they were teasing on that trailer and it, and it just drove me crazy because it seemed so damn interesting so now here we have it the finally the uh, Keith Reinhardt case so this, uh, so this uh, started out in the tiny village of Silver Plume Colorado population 200 uh, it lies in the heart of the Rocky Mountains on September, September 7th, 1987, Tom Young closed up his bookshop on Main Street and along with his dog, Gus, disappeared. Nine months later, a new resident of Silver, Silver Plume, Keith Reinhard, opened an antique shop at exactly the same location. On August 7th, 1988, Keith closed up his shop for the day. Less than two hours later, Keith Reinhard also disappeared. There were just too many coincidences. Keith Reinhardt and Tom Young both rented the same store. They both left town promising to return. Strangest of all, Keith was writing a book about Tom's disappearance when he too suddenly vanished. Keith Reinhardt moved to Silver Plume from Chicago with three goals. To get in shape by mountain climbing, to overcome his fear of heights, and to begin writing a novel. During his sabbatical, which basically what this is, a midlife crisis. The, the, the producers of the show didn't really want to say that but it's it's obviously what this is keith wanted to try running an antique shop geared towards summer tourists if it was successful he hoped that he and his wife could relocate there permanently keith's old friend ted parker ran a cafe in silver plume at the time of keith's disappearance and he's quoted here keith reinhardt and i grew up across the street from one another and we'd known each other for about 40 years i would say that our relationship was similar to that of brothers Keith was apprehensive and excited about turning 50. He was there to finish out the last of his 40s in the way that he had dreamed of. Before he got too old. And he couldn't do it anymore. Nine months earlier, earlier, Keith's antique shop had been a bookstore. Tom Young, the man who mysteriously disappeared with his dog, had run the store for about a year. Tom had told people he was taking a vacation to Europe. Three weeks went by before anyone became suspicious about his absence. Keith Reinhardt became obsessed by the unexplained disappearance and began talking to everyone in Silver Plume about Tom. And uh, basically, he went in and discussed people, discussed Tom with people who knew him, who knew Tom. 
just just randomly going around and just talking to me. Hey, do you know Tom? Uh, you know, <laughs> he actually went in and, and went right to the source. Eventually, Keefe decided to base his novel on Tom Young. When he began to write, he created a character named Guy Gypsum, a composite of, of himself and Tom. According to his daughter Tiffany, sometimes it seemed hard for Keefe to tell the difference between fact and fiction. She's quoted here and she says, Writers like to live the story they're writing about. Get a feel of it so it's easier for them to write about it. Maybe my father, it's always possible, wanted to feel what it's like to disappear so he could write about it. So he could write about it. On July 31st, 1988, 10 months after Tom Young disappeared, two hunters found the remains of Tom and his dog in the mountains near Silver Plume. Each had died from a bullet wound to the head. Now, when they show uh, this uh, grisly sight in the reenactment, it's all it's, it's just skeletons, which kind of added added to the eeriness to me. It was just like just imagine just hiking somewhere and then you just find the uh, human skeleton just laying there. Yeah, next I mean, to the skeleton I mean, of a dog. It's it's weird pretty- enough to see. Um- like, I remember I was walking through uh, this, like, open field one time, and then there was kind of, like, this little, like, um, hollow area. And uh, you could see uh, the skeletal remains with with some hide still on it of a uh, dead cattle or, or cow or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was, like, in the process of de- decomposition, but it, you know, it was pretty, you know, through the process already. To the point to where its bones were becoming very visible. Even seeing that in the wild, it's just something you you don't normally see in in a in the developed world. Um, this field happened to be out in a pretty remote area, um, and it's now it's all fenced off, and I think it's private property now, which sucks because it was an awesome field to walk in. But um, yeah, it, even seeing like a dead animal carcass is, is very weird to just happen upon. Especially something that big, because I mean, I think in the civil civilized world, we're used to seeing like dead possums and dead armadillos and small animals, but like a big ass cattle or even like a dog. But God, like a, a human remain that would be that would be very disturbing indeed. So uh, Dave Danahauer of the Clear Clear Black Clear Creek. God, that's hard for me to say for some reason. County Sheriff's Department was one of the first investigators to arrive on the scene. They were up there exploring uh, some territory for the bow hunting season, which is coming up, and they found his remains. Also found at that scene was a revolver. In subsequent investigation, we found out that Tom had purchased a gun approximately four days before he was last known to be in Silver Plume. The Tom Young case is closed and it has been ruled a suicide, both by the coroner's office and by the Clear Creek County Sheriff's Department. One week after Tom's body was found, Keith walked through the silver plume, through silver plume, telling everyone he saw that he was going to climb to the top of the nearby Pendleton Mountain. One of his stops was at Ted Parker's Cafe. He was in the cafe and he told me he was going to make it to the top of the mountain. He also said, if I don't come back, call on the rescue. And he said that in jest, and I, I felt. I don't know why he felt that way. <laughs> he, he, this is Tom Parker, Ted Parker, Tom Parker. There's too many Toms. So, Ted Parker, I don't know why he felt that way. Was, oh, I just thought, you know, he said it in jest. If I don't come back, call on the rescue. I mean, 
Why would you think that's ah ha ha ha? I, mean, I don't get it. Really, that. It's, I mean, context is everything in that in that in that situation. If he was yeah. like, huh, yeah, make sure you call uh, rescue if I don't make it back. <laughs> but if he was like, hey, look at me, make sure you call rescue if I don't come back. But that yeah, when the reenactment, I don't remember it sounding like it, he was joking around. He just if I don't come back, call in the rescue. I have this picture of him pointing to the mountain and saying goodbye. That was the last time I saw him. Keith was last seen walking toward Pendleton Mountain at 4.30 in the afternoon, far too late in the day to begin a difficult six-hour hike. That night, Keith Reinhardt did not return. The next day, helicopters were called to search the mountain. On the ground, more than 125 men and a dozen trained dogs combed the difficult terrain for seven days. Charlie Shemansky headed the Alpine rescue team, and he's quoted here. The Reinhardt search was like looking for the proverbial needle in a haystack. The haystack is 3,000 vertical feet of a 60-degree slope. This is about as difficult a search terrain as we cover. We were at a real disadvantage because Keith went into the mountains wearing no more than blue jeans and a flannel shirt and tennis shoes. He had no backpack. He had no equipment. A typical subject of a search will leave, a lots, will leave lots of clues for us to trace. Keith didn't leave many clues. He didn't have many with him to leave behind. In the 30 years of operation, the Colorado Alpine rescue teams had found every single person they had searched for, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, really. However, they discovered no trace of Keith Reinhardt. Some have concluded that Keith Reinhardt and Tom Young were murdered, noting that both men rented the same space to run their shops. Perhaps they both came across information someone didn't want them to know. Another theory is that Keith planned his own disappearance. However, Carolyn Reinhardt disagreed with that theory. I don't think that Keith would be the type of person to walk away from his whole entire life and leave it behind him. He loved the people in his life. He loved keeping in touch with them. And I don't think he could have left that all behind him. You know, does does anybody on this damn show ever think that their loved one is the type of person that does yeah, the stuff exactly. they end up doing? You know, I mean, come on now. There, there's a trope for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's if you're playing our drinking game, our Uncovering Unexplained Mysteries drinking game, every time somebody on Unsolved Mysteries says, so-and-so was not the type to do what that insert thing that they ended up probably doing. Um, yeah, that's definitely something that happens a lot on this show. People do Some weird you- shit, you know what I mean? I mean, like, people admit, if, I mean, especially if he's having a supposed midlife crisis, I mean, for fuck's sake, yeah. you know, I mean... Exactly. So some of Keith Reinhardt's friends recalled that he was fascinated by the idea of visiting West Virginia. Also, Keith attended a party the night before he disappeared. Witnesses say he spent a good, of, a good deal of time talking to a woman named Greta or Gretchen, who is probably from Denver. Police would like to talk to her. They hope she can remember something he said that would yield a clue to his whereabouts, if indeed he is still alive. Apparently, investigators located the woman named Greta or Gretchen, and they questioned her about the case. However, she had no information about Keefe's disappearance. In November 2001, Keefe's son, Sven Reinhard, who was interviewed in the UM segment, died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Keith Reinhard is yet to be found. However, he has since been declared legally dead. Now, there are some theories uh, from some of the commenters here. Which is kind of crazy. Like this is going to give you something, something to do with like pot growers around the area. 
was it was, was marijuana marijuana wasn't legal in Colorado way back then was it no so yeah some of the comments are more entertaining blaming the landlord landlord or pot growers so it's uh, there's something like okay this is near a huge mountain range that tells me the possibility of pot growers and they are a secluded group it's possible that both men were discovered by these farmers and were murdered I'm not a nut or looking for attention. I'm just into mysteries, and I've heard about these kind of farmers that look like a heck of a lot like a forest. Uh, you know, but I honestly don't know. Maybe Keith met a young woman who made him feel younger and went with her. Hopefully, we will find out sometime. And then this guy replies, he's like, ha, I'm one of the pot growers at the base of the mountain you're referring to. We are a kind group of farmers who aid in looking for missing persons and preserving the history and cleanliness of our town. I still keep my eyes out for clues every day while walking my dog along the trails. We prefer privacy, but we are definitely no murderers. We work hard to help others, not hurt them. The mountain trails are steep and have loose rock along with that and wild animals. The possibility of disappearing is very high. With rock slides and snow runoff, the mountain landscape is constantly changing, making recovery after many years very unlikely. I'd say alien abduction is a little more likely than murderous vigilante weed farmers. Jeez, the only thing that was missing from that comment was uh, we don't take kindly to being called murderers. (laughs) (laughs) Hey there, fella. We don't take kindly to accusations of murder. We're kindly farmers who try to help in searches, and we might be a little high when we do it. Um... (laughs) I this case is interesting because it's like what what exactly happened? I mean his body hasn't been found. Um I'm leaning towards maybe it was the same kind of thing that uh, Tom did. It was just suicide. He went to the mountain and just basically died on the mountain. My my dad always said um and I don't, I don't know how much joking he is about this. He's like, you know, if they ever give me a year to live, he's like, I'm gonna take a trip out to the woods hunting, and you guys just won't see me again. <laughs> Basically saying he's gonna go out in the woods and kill himself. It's probably serious. Yeah, no, he probably is. And so I mean, like when people say so and so is not the kind of person, well, you know, I mean, I hate to make this like super uber dark, but. You know, you you don't you're not inside someone's head except for that person. You know, they're the only. Well, I mean, why was he doing all this? Why was he moving to this small town? Why was he trying to change so much? Why was he? You know, if he's going through a midlife crisis, maybe there's more to it. Maybe he had some illness that he didn't want his family to know about. Right. You know, that does happen where people have these terminal illnesses and they don't want their family to go through the grief or you know deal with that along with them so they just take their own life or they just disappear they don't want to be a burden a perceived burden or whatever you know exactly so it's a really good case it's really interesting uh yeah like you said it's on i like i like the connection between the you know he's a writer and he's trying to write this story and and uh I like the whole thing where art imitates life, where he's writing about this disappearance, this guy who disappeared, and then he ends up disappearing himself. I mean, 
It's the kind of thing you think would only happen in the movies or, you know, in an episode of some TV show. But this actually did happen. Yeah, if you want to go watch it, check it out. It's on season two. Uh, We cannot seem to escape season one and two. I mean, right when I think we've covered every single segment on season one and season two, there's a new one that pops up. Like, we just cannot get into... <laughs> pre like like older seasons or or more it, it's it you mean, yeah well older seasons are really great um also the later seasons are good too it's 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 partly my fault i'm i'm behind i'm i'm just starting season 3 so <laughs> oh, well, you were the main one who was uh complaining that they hadn't put out season 5 yet and you weren't even on it so why did you care i cared because for the other other people and it was honestly pretty lame you're like Spider-Man. You're 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 not the hero. We uh you mean Batman. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> not not the hero we deserve, but the hero we need. What is I don't know how like you got it backwards. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, whatever. <laughs> See, I don't Dark Knight Dark Knight fanboys are going to be like, stupid, you know, stupid Josh doesn't even know the quote." No, our listeners are much kinder than your YouTube commenters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Although we do get some people who, you know, very very rarely. I mean, I honestly the only person I recall that was a straight up douche was that uh I don't want to say their name, but everyone on the group knows who I'm talking about. They they didn't even know what our podcast was or what it was about. They just joined and they started spamming a bunch of stupid crap. And then they was that the guy who was spamming his band? Yeah, yeah, his stupid band. And uh, you know what kind of jerk promotes their band? You know constantly and shoves it down people's throats. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And, 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 you know, even puts it at the end of a podcast trying to get people to buy their, you know, and I don't know anyone who would do that. Um, Neither do I. Yep. Nope. <laughs> I'm in denial right now, but I don't know anybody does that. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay, so. That wasn't even English. Yeah, no, it was. <laughs> I was having a meltdown just then a temporary one, so I'm I'm gibberish. I feel better now. Um, okay, moving on to our next segment, one that uh, I wanted to cover for a long time because I mean, honestly, eventually I wanted. To, I just want to, for my personal goal, I want to cover every segment that was on the Ultimate Collection because I've seen every segment on the Ultimate Collection many, 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 many times. So. I think you might want to rephrase that. You mean every good segment. Oh, no. No, no, my friend. There was a time in the uh, late 2000s where there was nothing Unsolved Mysteries that could be legally obtained. I didn't even know about any underground Unsolved Mysteries stuff. Yeah. Every message board I joined, they would be like, oh, by the way, uh, do not ask for... Uh, about trading VHS tapes of Unsolved Mysteries. Don't do this. Don't do that. They were very, even back then, they were very stringent. Well, it's because of uh, John and Terry were really anal about that back then. Yeah, and they probably still are. Um, if they, you know, knew about certain things. But, um, yeah, so all I had was the Ultimate Collection. So even the bad segments. Uh, this is how I normally did it. I'd do Strange Legends first. Then I'd do Bizarre Murders. And then I'd do UFOs. And then I'd start kind of going down to ghosts. And then when I hit the bottom of the barrel, I had to go to Miracles. Which is crazy because you say Miracles is one of the more expensive 
sets out there. Yes. That's not, that is yeah. nuts, because that's like literally the worst one of them all. I mean, it's still Unsolved Mysteries, so it's still absolutely watchable, some yeah. of them. Uh, some of them are god-awful, which we've covered. Might do a part two, uh, maybe around December, because I think that's the time we did it last year. Maybe around December we'll do... Uh, uh, like fan request month and the top worst unsolved mysteries part two or something like that. I don't know. Anyway, uh, this is Amelia Earhart. I want to talk about this, but this is more pressing recently because uh, there's actually been a uh, update about Amelia Earhart's case, which we will read that as well before getting to the Donna Parks interview. So, yeah, uh, this is one of the most famous disappearances ever, and understandably so. Um, this is a great segment. I, I wanted to talk about it sometime as well. Uh, it, it is very... It, it's sad to think about these theories and, and to think that they're valid. You know, if this really is true, and this is how Amelia Earhart left this world, I mean, that's really sad, and I can kind of see why there would be some kind of cover-up by the government, because they don't really want her legacy to be tarnished they'd and and they'd rather her be disappear just be known as somebody who disappeared in the ocean somewhere and somebody who was shot in a ditch and left for dead by the japanese yeah and you know amelia Earhart, she was she was around during the 1930s i was kind of like her peak of uh fame and popularity before she disappeared and she was really ahead of her time. She was, she was a trailblazer. Yeah, she really was a trailblazer in every sense of the word. She was a badass. She spoke about women's equality way, way, way before, you know, the 1970s when women's liberation kind of proliferated. In the 60s as well. Yeah, 60s, but more so in the 70s than anything, mm -hmm. I would say. But, um, yeah, I mean, she was way back in the 30s, you know, talking about you know, how women ought to be able to do the same things as men and yada, yada, yada. And, uh, you know, that that kind of stuff was just unheard of at that time. And, you know... Well, you didn't really hear of very, very many female pilots either. So. Yeah, yeah. And, I mean, I, I still don't, personally. I mean... I would say Amelia Earhart is more well-known than Charles Lindbergh is. You know, you know, a lot of people... You know, there are people who remember Charles, but I'd say in the mainstream, Amelia Earhart is more well-known than Charles. I mainly just remember Charles Lindbergh for his kid being yeah. abducted. Yeah. Anyway. I'm surprised they didn't talk about that in the show. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? That would have been a great, great one for them to... Or maybe... Did, did they do that one? I think they might have. Maybe it was a later season or I don't something. know. So anyway, Amelia Earhart was a female aviation celebrity of the 1930s. She was the first woman pilot to fly solo across the Atlantic Ocean. She received the U.S. Distinguished Flying Cross for this record. She set many other records, wrote best-selling books about her flying experiences, and was instrumental in the formation of an organization for female pilots. Earhart joined the faculty of an aviation department in 1935, as a visiting faculty member to counsel women on careers and help inspire others with her love for aviation. In 1937, accompanied by her flight navigator, Fred Noonan, she was attempting an around-the-world flight. Had she succeeded, she would have been the first woman to circumnavigate the world by airplane. The two left Oakland, California on May 20, 1937, and traveled eastward across the United States. 
They continued this eastward pattern along the equator. At 10.22 a.m. on the 1st of July, Earhart and Noonan departed from Ley, New Guinea for Howland Island, which was 4,113 kilometers away. Now, why they couldn't have given us that measurement in miles, I don't know. It was the last time that they would have been seen alive. The last known position of their plane was near the Nukamu, Nukamanu, <laughs> Nukamanu Islands, 1,300 kilometers into the flight. The United States Coast Guard were set up to communicate via radio, but this was not successful. Problems are believed to have been caused by, the lack, by Amelia Earhart's lack of knowledge of this new technology and not putting the half-hour time difference into consideration when scheduling. Yeah, this was before radar, folks. So they used radio waves in order to communicate and to transmit stuff like, oh, I need help, we're stuck somewhere, you know, this is this is a different time. And this is something that isn't really talked about that much when it comes to Amelia Earhart, and the segment discusses it, and I'm glad they did, because it talks about how she was stubborn and didn't really learn how to use the radio properly. And that might have been one of the main reasons why she disappeared. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. If you if you go back and you want and you're able to watch the segment, uh, she really uh, well. They did a great job on the segment. It's on season three. It's on episode eight, I believe. Oh, look at you, fancy pants uh, knowledge over here, Mister on Amazon Prime. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they did a good job conveying um, just just kind of like the confusion and um, she thought if she had left the because uh, you know on like. Um, like intercoms or whatever you 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 hold down the button to speak and then you let go of the button to hear what the other person has to say basically on her radio if she had just held down the button to talk into the the receiver she didn't even have she wouldn't have even had to have said anything but she could have just held it down long enough for them to get uh kind of her coordinates but she didn't know that about you know, this newfangled radio communication system. So she was trying to, like, whistle into it, but she would never leave the transmission open long enough for them to pinpoint her location, which could have been a fatal error on her on her end. Well, yeah. She did that also on purpose because the last flight she did, she ended up running the battery dead on her radio. So she, I guess she didn't want to do that again. So that's why she did that. Yeah. But if you're in trouble, it's one of those things. It's probably a better idea to, you know, use the battery. So, because how useful is your full battery going to be if you're if you crash into the ocean? So hours later, on the morning of July second, Earhart's transmissions could be heard, but it appeared that the messages sent to their aircraft were not being received. As time went on, transmissions from Earhart became more and more garbled, and soon became hard to decipher. The strength of the transmissions received indicated that Earhart and Noonan were in the vicinity of Howland Island, but could not find it. And after numerous more attempts, it appeared that the connection had dropped. The last transmission received from Earhart indicated that she and Noonan were flying along a position taken from a sun line running on 157 to 
I don't know what a sun line is. I know what a, I know what a tan line is, but I have no idea what a sun. Yeah, line just is. Re- just disregard that last thing. So I'm just going to read that without the parentheses. <laughs> the last transmission received from Earhart indicates she and Noonan were flying along a line of position, which Noonan would have calculated and drawn on a chart as passing through Howland Island. Only one hour after the last transmission was received, the search for them began. The United States Coast Guard and Navy both searched the surrounding waters of Howland Island and the neighboring Gardner Island. Uh, The official search ended 17 days later after $4 million had been spent on search resources. And it was crazy. There was was something like 80 planes, 10 ships. it was an insane amount of effort that was put into trying to find Amelia. At this point in time, it was the largest, most expensive, and most publicized search to date, but no trace of Amelia or Fred was ever found. On January 5th, 1939, Earhart was declared legally dead. Now, now let me do um, an inflation calculation. Inflation calculation. That sounds, sex- sounds sexual to me for some reason. I want to figure out how much that uh, $4 million is in today's money back in, in 1937. I've done this before. Um, okay, so let's select 1937. Four, one, two, three, four, five, six zeros. Uh, yeah, let me double check that. To 2017, let's calculate that. Holy shit. Okay, let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, so four million dollars in nineteen thirty-seven would equal sixty-nine million four hundred and twenty-eight thousand five hundred and seventy-one dollars and forty-three cents in two thousand seventeen. That's a lot of money. Yeah. For a search. Holy shit. And that that's 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 taxpayers' money probably, I would imagine. Jesus. So there are actually some theories on the disappearance of Amelia Earhart. During the 1980s, some researchers who examined the disappearance were convinced by unsubstantiated accounts that Amelia and Fred veered off course by 2,000 miles and landed on the island of Saipan, where they were captured and executed by the Japanese Navy. These witnesses were, I believe, interviewed in this segment. This is a great segment not only because of the whole Amelia Earhart thing and it's her fascin it's it's a fascinating story to think about what happened to her like how did she disappear where is she what happened to the plane what happened to her body and so on and it's also a really great segment because this is one of the segments that you can really tell there was a budget behind this particular segment uh, i mean they had like uh, replicas of the plane that Amelia Earhart flew. They were looked like they were shooting on location. You know the sets and stuff like that. Costume and art direction was all really well done. So this is all. This really did add to the segment because you had these really interesting stories from these uh, people who said they saw certain things. And yeah, I know it's kind of hard to prove. So take this with a giant grain of salt, folks. <laughs> Um, but I, I tend to think there might, I, I personally think there might be something to this. I mean, what, what, what do these soldiers really have to gain by lying? But at the same time, one guy actually wrote a book about it. So who knows? 
So anyway, uh, the theory, there are different theories. So uh, unsubstantiated accounts that Amelia and Fred veered off course by 2,000, 2000 miles and landed in Saipan. Witnesses place Amelia's plane in the custody of military officials in the area and the execution of two American pilots by the Japanese. One U.S. Army soldier named Thomas Devine claims to have seen Amelia's plane on Saipan during World War II, just seven years after she had disappeared. He overheard two soldiers confirm that the plane was Amelia's. An official reprimanded those soldiers for talking about the plane, and later he saw the plane flying overhead, so he wrote down the identification numbers. The numbers matched those that were on Amelia's plane. He also claimed that the Army destroyed her plane later that night by setting it on fire. It was a pretty crazy sight to see in the segment. Just this, It would be very surreal if you were in his shoes. It's like there's this plane flying overhead. You're like, oh, that doesn't look like a normal military plane. And then l- later that night, you see the same plane on fire. And you found out, you deducted that, you know... You made some, you had, you know, you had some uh, thoughts in your head and you, you thought things through and you realized, oh, that was a million yeah, it's like, plane. That some of these it's like, have you ever seen about. something in a bizarre area where you, where you really aren't supposed to see it, you know, and how weird that is? I kind of feel like that's, that's how this would be. You know, you're in some random yeah. area. You know, random part of you know some country in some kind of jungly area, and then you see what looks like a stealth bomb yeah, or, or something like you know if you or like you know the 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 typical kind of like you know you go to the jungle and then you just see this antenna sticking up from the ground and then there's this underground laboratory where there's doing all these crazy experiments yeah. and it's like all this high technology kind of stuff like so. Yeah. Or or you're you're hiking and then you see the side of a mountain. Yeah, it's like Manchurian Candidate, Beautiful Mind kind of shit, you know, going on. So on the same island, another soldier named Bob Wallach claims he found a bag filled with documents that were owned by Amelia, including her passport. He turned the documents over to his commanding officer, and the documents, like Amelia, were never seen again. And he's interviewed in the segment. He's saying things like, "I gave it to a guy." In the, in the army who is very high up in the ranks. So he believes that that briefcase is still somewhere in the United States. Well, they, in the segment, they were, they were kind of the, the they were doing some kind of illegal cause they were going in and they were like, yeah, they, they went, they went to this, this like rundown, uh, building and uh, they were just these bored military guys and one of the guys was good with uh, explosives and they found this safe and like just for fun they're like well let's blow the safe open and then they find all these pertinent documents that pertain to uh, Amelia Earhart and they turned them over to this official and they, these documents were never seen again and then you have uh, another theory where one Saipan native who was still living in the 1990s said that in the late 1930s, two Americans were captured by the Japanese. They were forced into the town center where they were stripped of their clothing. It was then revealed that one of the Americans was a woman. I remember how she was quoted, and she said, I've never seen a woman wear men's trousers before. 
The two then were held prisoner for several days. The witness later recalled seeing the woman blindfolded, taken to a field, and executed by a firing squad. The witness is certain that the woman was Amelia. However, these alleged events almost certainly uh, are almost certainly whatever the fuck that word is. <laughs> Ap- uh, apro apocryphal. I don't even. I've never. Okay, heard hold that on word now. I gotta life. find where you're at here because I'm. I'm sure I can pronounce it. Send me this word, Mike. Copy and copy and paste it. Okay. Uh oh. All right. So the, uh, I see the word you sent me. Uh, yeah, that's a weird word. Apocryphal. I have no yeah, idea. That might be it. Yeah. Uh, no idea. The witness is certain that the woman was Amelia. However, these alleged events are almost certainly ap- apocryphal. Apocryphal. It's the apocalypse of a word for me. In 1987, a search was done of the area where the execution allegedly occurred. A blindfold was found, however, no remains were located. Furthermore, Saipan lies hundreds of miles west of Earhart's known flight path, making it doubtful she landed there. Today, many researchers believe that the Electra ran out of fuel somewhere near Howland Island and that Earhart and Noonan ditched at sea. One researcher believes that due to an incorrect map, compass problems, and wind shifts, the plane most likely ditched 35 miles west of Howland Island. The researchers who support the crash and sink theory say that the Pacific Ocean is the largest ocean in the world, with many hundreds and thousands of miles separating tiny dots of dry land. They also say that the waters of the Pacific are so deep that finding the aircraft would be like searching for a needle in a haystack. However, Howland was by no means the only island within range, and the aircraft appeared to have enough fuel to reach an alternate destination. Furthermore, it is also believed that the aircraft ditched at sea, it would have been more able it would have been able to float until discovered, and numerous searches of the ocean floor by new underwater technology have failed to find the aircraft. Therefore, based on the lack of concrete evidence to support the above theories, a more likely theory is that Earhart and Noonan found Gardner Island, now known as Nicaragua Island, uh, landed the plane on the reef near the wreck of a uh, freighter. <laughs> near the wreck of a freighter? They landed the plane on the reef near the wreck of a freighter. Is wreck a term that can mean something other than a wreck, like crash? Because a wreck of a freighter, okay, a wreck of a ship. So I guess there was a freighter that was just wrecked that they landed near, okay. Yeah. And then they sent sporadic radio messages from there. It has been surmised that rising tides and surf swept the plane over the reef edge, and Earhart and Noonan survived on Nicaragua Island for several weeks before succumbing to injury, starvation, thirst, disease, or simply dehydration on the waterless atoll. One week after the well, wait, before I go any further, how long do you think it took before they, like, had sex? <laughs> I mean, let's think about this. If they're both heterosexual, let's just assume they are, um, like, how long are you on that island before you're just like, well, you know, I, I do know one thing that might ease our frustrations a little bit and relieve some stress, uh... You know, uh, you you are wearing that coconut bra, and I do have this, uh, you know, loincloth that's made out of uh, leaves, and, uh, you know, you know what I'm thinking there, Amelia? You, you think that's a possibility, or no? 
Mike, man, you, you feel free to touch. This isn't hot, man. You won't burn your hands on this the spicy stuff we're talking about. You can touch it. I wouldn't touch that with a ten meter cattle prod. Oh God, I I okay. I say if they're on that island, I said make a few days. I'd say three days, and they had sex. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. That's just, just that's. I would think that would be the last thing they would be thinking of, and in this situation, you know, they're just trying to survive and hope they don't die. Try to look for food. Look for shelter. You know, I, I honestly, water. I think it would be kind of fun to, like, have to survive on an island for, like, two days. Like, just, like, max. Just two days tops. Yeah, just two days. Just, you know, it would be a vacation. Like, I want to see, I want to see, like, what I could do that maybe other people haven't thought of, you know? Like, what could I figure out on this island, you know? Um, maybe maybe a day. <laughs> <laughs> Go from two days to a day. Okay, so a half a day. How about I'm half say, a day on I'm a saying like island? Okay, like like six twelve six hours. hours. Twelve hours. Six hours on it, being stuck on an island. I think I could. I think I could have some fun. I think I could. Maybe you need to join the cast of Survivor then. That was such an awful show. There were so many awful shows in the two thousands. Like big, it's still on. I think Big Brother, it? American Idol, Survivor. Those are just such trash, trash, garbage shows. Fear Factor. Fear Factor. All which apparently has come back. God. And I'm like, who cares? Yeah, that's that's Fear one of the only reasons Joe sure. Rogan's podcast is so popular is because he was on Fear Factor. And UFC, whatever. Who cares? Um, that's none of that's neither here nor there. It's mainly UFC, not fear. Oh, whatever. Uh, see, that just shows how out of touch I am. Um, really, that, UFC fans are going to be typing angry. Uh, Mike, I think you're just used to your douchebag YouTube viewers burning you all the time. Our <laughs> listeners are much kinder than your YouTube commenters. Mm. One week after the flight disappeared, three U.S. Navy search planes flew over Gardner Island. The Navy flyers saw, quote, signs of recent habitation, end quote, but they believed the island to be inhabited. Uh, and so they moved on. What? what? That's such a fucked up sentence. <laughs> they saw signs of recent habitation, but they believed the island to be inhabited, so they moved on. Uh, I, uh, that's what the sentence says. That's not me. <laughs> I'm gonna guess what they meant to say was they believed the island to be uninhabited, so they moved on. When in fact it had been abandoned since 1890. Okay, so now it's just a train wreck sentence. So they they, they okay they weren't found in that scenario in 1940. A British colonial no, but still, I mean, if they if they saw signs of recent habitation, but they believed the island to be uninhabited, so they moved on. That's still fucked up. Because if they're searching for somebody or something, why would they just give up? Oh, it looks like somebody's been here recently. Oh, nobody's there. They might have been hungry. <laughs> Needed a quarter pound. Yeah, of they might have. It might have been like really close to lunch, and they're like, eh, "There's probably nothing down there. I mean, there hasn't really been anything anywhere else." So. Since 1890-something? Yeah, who cares? Let's fly back to the uh, White Castle and get some sliders. Um, In 1940... (laughs) It's probably not... White Castle probably... I I bet it was. Let's see here. Origins of White Castle. (laughs) 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 
Unsolved Mysteries. Unsolved Mysteries. Boom! September 13th, 1921, Wichita, Kansas, bitch! Wow. Wow. Yeah, how you like that, Mike? How does that burn feel? How you taking that burn? All right, let's move on, shall we? In 1940, a British colonial officer and licensed pilot radioed his superiors, informing them that he had found a female skeleton along with a sextant box under a tree at a makeshift campsite on the island's uh, southeast corner. What's a sextant box? I don't know. Box? You know, it's like a general rule for whenever we read shit on here, like when we're reading articles, it's like, let's throw in at least 22 words that these guys can't fucking even begin to pronounce correctly and just do that to make them sound like stupider than they already are. Which, I would say, like, if you guys were, like, thinking that this, like, stupidity was, like, a front that I'm putting on or an act or whatever, I, I hope that this episode, like, truly shows you that it's not. Um, the skeleton had roughly the same proportions as Amelia Earhart, but both bones in the box are currently missing. The colony on Nicaramando Island was abandoned in a severe drought in 1963, and the remains went AWOL with it. Scientists have been unable to determine the identity of the skeleton conclusively as modern tests cannot be run without the remains. In a 1998 report, the American Anthropological Association, wow, I am surprised I jumped over that word so seamlessly, researchers concluded that they, quote, can be certain of is that the bones that were found on the island in 1939 uh, associated with what were observed to be woman's shoes in a navigator's sextant box and that the morphology of the recovered bones, insofar as we can tell by applying contemporary forensic methods to the measurements taken at the time, appears to be consistent with a female of Earhart's height and ethnic origin. That was like the longest run-on sentence I've ever read in my life. Yeah, Holy exactly. shit. <laughs> I don't know if there's any more words they could have put in there for it to be grammatically correct. <laughs> I mean, they, they maxed that out. Um, further searching of the island led to the discovery of an aluminum panel, possibly from the plane, a piece of plexiglass identical down to the exact thickness and curva curvature of the window on the plane and a size 9 shoe heel resembling the footwear Earhart is shown to be wearing in promotional photos for the flight. A jar with mercuric traces of Dr. Barry's brand uh, freckle cream, presumably belonging to Earhart, has also been found. Uh, even though the crash and sink theory is more commonly believed, the surviving Earhart family have all said that they believe in the Gardner Island theory. From the evidence, it is speculated that Amelia died at the makeshift campsite where the skeleton was found. Noonan's fate on the island has been less speculated on due to the lack of evidence. But who's kidding who? It's been less speculated on because less people give a shit. Um, the TIGHAR project are currently working on DNA analysis of bone fragments and fecal matter gross, as well as analysis of artifacts and searching for evidence of animals hunted as food by the castaways. Due to the cost of analytical equipment and outside expertise, they are relying on donations to do so. I'm sure they have a Kickstarter. Uh, recently, underwater imaging has shown what appears to be a strut, a fender, a wheel, and worn gear, as well as other possible pieces in the debris field. They are consistent with the upside-down landing gear of the plane. Uh, an October 28, 2014 article by Rosselli Lorenzi states that a small piece of aluminum found on Nicaramando Island is found uh, is believed by TIGHAR uh, to be a patch from the fuselage. Yeah, Tigger. Tigger, there you go. Uh, <laughs> from the fuselage of Earhart's Lockheed Electra. This patch, which was replaced, uh, which replaced a navigational window on the Electra, can be clearly seen in the photo of the plane taken by Miami Herald when the plane departed from San Juan, Puerto Rico. Tigger. 
hopes to return to Nicaramondo Island in 2015 to continue to search for the plane in the waters off the island atoll. It's Nick Nicaragua Bunghole. Uh, <laughs> you give me tippy for my bunghole, Nicaramondo. <laughs> okay, um, let's go over to the update, shan't we? All right, so this is from CNN. Fake news. Fake, uh, no, weird. no, fake news. Can't read it. It's fake news. Wrong. Wrong. I can't even begin to do a good Donald Trump impersonation, which is... I can't. That was, that was not that bad. Than I can do a much can do better Bernie Sanders uh, than, than I can uh, Donald Trump. Oh. Well, I think today is the, the, what, net neutrality thing? They're trying to... Yeah, what's, uh, what's that all about? Uh, websites I'm are boycotting... Shit. Uh, it, it, it's about uh, uh, cable companies trying to uh, get rid of net neutrality laws, which means they can kind of control uh, throttle internet speeds and stuff like that, and so on. And yeah, it's 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 pretty scary, actually. So wow, um, that sucks. Yeah. A newly discovered photo that is claimed to hold the key to the 80-year-old mystery surrounding Amelia Earhart's disappearance may have been published two years before she vanished, new evidence suggests. The blurry photo used in a History Channel documentary was alleged to show the groundbreaking pilot and her navigator, Fred Noonan, alive and well on a dock in the Marshall Islands in 1937. But two bloggers say they have found the photo in a Japanese coffee table book from 1935, when Earhart was safely in the United States. The bloggers say the photo was originally published in a travel book titled Naval Lifeline, The View of Our South Pacific, Photo Album of the Southern Pacific Islands. This book is shown in a digital photo in Japan's National Diet Library, the country's largest collection of books. The site says it is from Showa 10, the 10th year of the Showa Emperor, also known as 1935. One of the bloggers, Matt Hawley, said the person previously identified as Earhart in the photo could even be a man. This figure has an upper body group of a man, he said. What does that mean? There's an upper body group of a man. The History Channel said in a statement Tuesday that its investigators were exploring the latest development and the channel would be transparent in our findings. Ultimately, historical accuracy is most important to us and our viewers, it said on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, says the, ch the channel that airs ancient aliens. <laughs> So since Earhart vanished while attempting to become the first woman to fly around the world, dozens of theories have attempted to explain her disappearance. The photo, which a former U.S. Treasury agent said he discovered in the U.S. National Air Archives, was claimed to show Earhart and Noonan on the dock at the Jalut, Jalut Atoll in the Marshall Islands. It appeared to add credence to one theory that the Japanese army captured Earhart. Japan controlled the Marshall Islands between the two world, war war Ugh, between the two world wars. The photo was the focus of a two-hour documentary special on the History Channel called Amelia Earhart, The Lost Evidence. Of course, History Channel would... Only the History Channel would have a two-hour-long documentary on just some photos some guy found. <laughs> <laughs> but almost immediately, questions were raised over the, what the photo actually showed with Dorothy Cochrane, the curator for the aeronautics department at the Smithsonian National Air and Space Museum, telling CNN she wasn't convinced. People take photos and interpret them, and they're free to do that. It has not persuaded me, she said. 
Kota Yamano, a Japanese military history blogger, was skeptical about the photo as well. Shortly after learning about it, he searched the term Jaolut in the National Diet Library and quickly found the photo in a 1935 book. The whole thing took about 30 minutes, he said. I wonder why the History Channel did not have even one person who understand Japanese or the history between Japan and the U.S., he told CNN. Holloway the blogger said the lack of Japanese soldiers on the dock suggested it was not taken in 1937. The entire life of the Marshallese is changing. In the 1937 came the war in China and military activities in the Marshall Islands by the Japanese. There's not a Japanese person on that dock. If it was 1937, there would be Japanese soldiers there, he said. Famous pilot made headlines. Writing for CNN, Cochrane said that Earhart was one of the most revered women and pilots in the 1930s and an international celebrity when she vanished. She had already become the first woman to fly across the Atlantic alone in May 1932. It was headline news when she embarked on a around-the-world voyage. For more than a month, millions of people followed the world fight. Flight. It's not really a fight. World fight. <laughs> when she said uh, Noonan disappeared en route from Lai, New Guinea, to the tiny Howell Island, it was naturally front page and heartbreaking news, Cochrane said. The simplest explanation is that Earhart Noonan, Noonan ran out of fuel and crashed into the Pacific Ocean, which is a theory officially held by the U.S. government. Some of the more unlikely theories suggest Earhart was a spy for the U.S. government, or that she survived her landing but died a castaway. And I'm pretty sure there's somebody who has an alien abduction theory in there somewhere, too. <laughs> Just for good measure, yeah, I'm sure. And Cochrane is uh, quoted here in the last thing in this article. I don't blame people for wanting to know what happened, and it is one of the greatest mysteries of the 20th century. It doesn't seem like we have any more answers. This photo that History Channel spent 20 years about, it does seem like it's been debunked. I mean, I'm looking at this right now. It looks like the photo that was reportedly published in 1935, it's just zoomed out. And then the one on the History Channel is zoomed in. Now it might be thirty-seven, but I don't. I don't know. I don't know. And plus, the photo is kind of blurry, so I don't even know how you can really prove anything. You look at this photo, you're like, it's a bit disappointing of a development. So there's new evidence, and then you look at the photo, you're like, it's from the back, and it's some 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 human being, some person sitting on a dock. Dock of a bay, maybe? <laughs> Sitting on the dock of a bay, watching the tide roll away. Or whatever, roll away. I guess clouds don't really wash away. Watching the... <laughs> you know, there's, uh, there's, there's theories that that song's about you suicide. <laughs> what are you talking about, Mike? Mike, how many, uh, how many drugs are you on right now? I'm not on any drugs. You're on I'm high in life. Oh my god. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, our marriage is failing, Mike. Um, yeah, this is uh this is a little disappointing, I'm going to be honest. Uh if you if you look at Oh my god, dude, like okay, so you Look at this photo. I mean, it's blurry. It, it's just a shot from behind with some person with short hair sitting on the dock of a Dude, bed. this is exactly the kind of photo 
that people put on Facebook or people put on YouTube and then they, they like what they do on here, how they like dimmed the opacity on the picture and they only do little punched out circles around two people. And, yeah. and then they'll have like a re- an arrow pointing and they'll say like uh-huh. it'll be some clickbaity bullshit like the new what really happened to Amelia Earhart. And then when you actually click on it, like it gives you nothing new that you didn't already know. Like I hate when they do this kind of shit. Yeah, that's essentially I'm not a fan of it either. That's essentially what this is. This is kind of click. Yeah. This is kind of clickbaity. I'm not gonna lie. I don't know if clickbaity is a word, <laughs> but <laughs> I guess it's like Warren Beatty, but uh, your first name's Click instead of Warren. All right, guys. Uh, enough dicking around. Um, we're done with this picture, right? Yeah, we're done with this okay. picture. We're done with the new evidence. It's not really much. Okay. So new enough dicking around. Let's get to the feature presentation here. Um, the interview with Donna uh, Parks from um, the Texas Most Wanted segment. Uh, just to set up the scenario again, uh, her brother was murdered by one of Texas Most Wanted. Um, he was basically mowing the lawn in his mom's backyard when this guy pulled up named uh, Edward Harold Bell. There were some kids playing in the street. This guy, Edward Bell, uh, took his pants off and started walking towards the kids. Why did he do that? I don't know. Obviously, there's some mental issues going on there. And um, Larry's mother, upon seeing this man doing this, she's watching him do it uh, as she's looking through her window. She uh, she tells Larry, like, there's this guy out here who's, like, exposing himself to children. So Larry goes to stop the guy, and he takes his keys. He takes the keys from Harold Her- uh, Bell's uh, truck so he can't escape. And then Edward Harold Bell gets a gun, and he starts shooting Larry. He fills him full of lead. Oh, like, the most overkill situation I've ever seen on Unsolved Mysteries uh, it's very tragic. And um, so now Donna is going to recall for us the day that that happened, her recollection of it, um, being on the set of Unsolved Mysteries, how it was filming, just some kind of behind-the-scenes stuff that you won't get anywhere else from anyone else. So uh, I hope you enjoy that interview. Here it is. So I'll just get into the questions now. Um, so had you, had you heard of the show Unsolved Mysteries before? Before you were on it? Yes, absolutely. It was one of our favorite shows. It was one of those shows that you couldn't wait for it to come on every week. And I remember, um, you know, the whole the music in the background until this day when <laughs> I hear that music, it kind of puts me in the mindset of getting excited because you knew something was about to be on TV that was really good. Yeah, so you watched it. You watched it on Guessing where it still ran on NBC on Wednesdays, or yes, I did. Okay, cool. I, I remember I was a big fan of the show from the first time it came out. It was just wonderful. Yeah, same here. I I watched it back when it was uh, they were they were running the reruns on Lifetime back in like oh. the late yeah the late nineties uh, early two thousands is when I mainly saw it because I think I was a little too young when the 
Well, I think my grandma, she really likes the show and we used to watch it. She'd come down from Massachusetts and she'd watch the show with me. I was way too little to be watching a show like that, but apparently <laughs> in her mind it was okay. So it's just like, oh. <laughs> she, like grandmas can get away with all sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's cool. Um, well, obviously you were on the show, so that must have been a thrill. To I mean, Well, I mean... It was kind of under horrible circumstances, but um, how did your family, like, get selected to be on Unsolved Mysteries? Was it a phone call, or, like, how it did... It was. It was a phone call. The actual incident happened in August of 1978, and I believe they called me in 1990, 91, right in there, and... Um, Edward Harold Bill was on the top 10 most wanted list in Texas. And I guess when they were doing research for the top 10 and everything, they came across uh, this murder and decided to look us up. And that's exactly what they did. Was it some kind of production guy who called you or was it, do you remember who it was? I'm trying to remember. I mean, this was, gosh, 27 years ago. Yeah, I know. Um, yeah, I remember we got a phone call and they said who they were and that they were with uh, the show called Unsolved Mysteries and that they were interested in doing a segment on uh, our family and everything that we went through and hopefully be able to catch this guy. And that's exactly what happened. I can remember um, when they were going through who they were going to hire for the different parts to play on Unsolved Mysteries, my stepson actually went to the tryout to play the part of my my brother who was murdered. He didn't get the part, but his best friend did. And he had gone to school with Matthew McConaughey. Wow. And so, yeah, so it, it all worked out for the better. And, um, yeah, it, it was it was really something. That was Matthew McConaughey's very first role, paid acting role. And we sat and had lunch with him. It was really strange sitting across the table from him because – he really did favor my brother a lot, a lot. But what was even creepier was the guy that they got to play, Edward Harold Bell. And I can't remember his name right off the top of my head, but he sat next to me at the lunch table. And, we, you know, we're sitting under the trees at this picnic table, and they had brought in sandwiches and everything for everybody uh, that was on the production team. And that kind of creeped me out a little bit because this guy did look like the murderer. So, yeah, that was kind of freaky. Yeah, I thought that they cast a really great uh, guy to play just the sleazebag, you know, yeah, pervert. Yeah, they really so, did. Like, they, they, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, that, that segment is one of, the, one of the very few segments for me that is hard to watch, um, even the reenactment, like even knowing that the reenactment itself is fictional. It's just... It's so hard to watch. I'm I'm guessing yeah. you've seen the segment yourself, right? Or Oh or... yes, many times, many times. The the main differences of course are the fact that they could not show how violent and bloody it really was. Um they cut away and they didn't show things that actually happened and um so they you know, they kinda of downplayed it for family TV, if you will, and took away some of the really horrible parts. Yeah, even still, it was still so violent. Like, even even with even with what little they were able to show, I couldn't... What, what blew my mind and what makes it so hard to watch is 
you have your mother in the kitchen, and then she ha- she's seeing all this happen in front of her. Like, it, it's like a movie. Like, this doesn't happen in real life, you know? Like, exactly. this kind of stuff just doesn't happen. And then she opens the door to the garage, and there he is, you know, in in the state that he's in, and there's this, this, this slime bag of a guy who's just shooting him for no reason, and, and he, all the times that he shoots him, it's like overkill. That's what yeah. really just pushed it over the edge for me. Exactly. The man was just psychotic, and especially when he fell down and my mother is holding him in her arms, and he puts the gun right up to my brother's forehead while my mother is cradling him in her arms, and he pulls the trigger. That- and... I don't know how my mother was even able to carry on after that. She was one of the strongest women I'll ever know. So that was just beyond me. And then when she put some towels around his head and she ran back in the house to call the ambulance, she thought the guy was leaving, and he goes back out to his truck and gets a high-powered rifle and comes back and stands over my brother, straddling his body and empties it right into his face. Oh, my so, God. Yeah, and, of course, they can't show that on TV. They, that wasn't even part of it. But I watched that part from from my car when I was sitting at the stop sign. So, so it was pretty in horrific. Segment, in the segment, you or you drive up, and, and, and you actually block this guy off in your car yes. from, from leaving. Right. Was was that just was that just an instinct in you? Like you you just automatically because if I saw that before, right, I wouldn't know what was going on. But you it was. To put it, it together. Yeah, it was just an instinct. I just blocked blocked his exit down the street, and then I remember jumping out of my car and running over to my brother and left the car running. And the neighbors had come out and they moved my car later. But then um, he backed out and took off, and then the police chase ensued. And the only way they really caught him, well, the way they caught him, there was a helicopter over our house the whole time this was happening because as soon as my mother called and alerted 911, then there was a helicopter already in the area. And so they just came over and started uh, watching this guy, and he turned down a dead-end street and crashed through these people's backyard, and that's how they caught him. Yeah, and they showed that in the segment because the guy was – Bell was trying to shoot down the the cop. Yeah, he's gun jammed. Yeah, I mean. I know there was one part uh, when they were filming the Unsolved Mysteries that I don't know if anybody even picked up on this, but whenever Bell backed out from where he was parked after he shot my brother and took off going down the other direction, he backed out so fast that he almost hit the entire camera crew. And when you're watching the scene unfold, you see the back of that truck come right up to the camera, and then he slams on his brakes and takes off in the other direction. Oh, wow. I, yeah, that I didn't, never noticed really that. was really scary. People were jumping and flying out of the way, and it was it was something else. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why people still, like, watch that show and talk about it so much is because they, they did really good quality work. For, I mean, yeah, it's, they it's really kind, did. kind of timeless, you know, I mean... The, with, with the, you know everything about it, um, you you didn't play yourself in the reenactment, did you? No, I didn't. Yeah, I didn't think I didn't think you did. Um, the actress they chose to play you though uh, in the scene where where 
uh, Bell has to be identified as the perpetrator. And right. the woman playing you, she runs up, she goes, that's him, that's him. And then she runs into the car and she starts hitting him. She's like, I hate you, I hate you. And she's screaming at him. It conveyed the feeling of rage so well because that's, as as the viewer, we're all feeling that as well towards this guy, this hatred towards this guy. And I just thought that actress who portrayed you, she, I thought she played that so brilliantly. Just she that, really that did. And whenever they... They already had the script and everything written of what they were going to do. And as I was going through it with them, and they didn't know that I had jumped in the car and tried to claw this guy's eyes out. And so they all had a complete rewrite then, and they wanted to put that scene in because that's exactly what happened. And I guess that scene, more than anything else, is what really grips my heart because it brings back those feelings of of rage and just complete loss of control that I had had absolutely nothing that I could do to help my family that he was already gone. And, um, yeah, that scene really gets me every time I see it. I mean, I think, I, I think, um, I think everybody can relate to that reaction because yeah. that's how anybody would want to react. Some people wouldn't be ballsy enough to do it. I mean, you, <laughs> you're a very, uh, uh, daring person because I mean, not only did you block this guy off, then you jump in and it, and attack him and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, like you, uh, you really uh, are a very uh, gutsy person for for doing all that stuff. Because I, I think some people might not might have uh, been a little too afraid to even encounter that with this guy. But you didn't care. You just went in there and uh, yeah, went I just after. wanted to hurt him. I, I don't know that I would have done that if he had not have been handcuffed. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean... <laughs> but at the time, you know, it was just a gut reaction, just something that just I couldn't control it. I just attacked him. So, yeah. So, you've seen the you've seen the um, segment as a whole. Um, it, does it pretty much um, lay out how it, how it went down? Uh, is there anything they left out? I mean, you've told me some things already, but kind of as a whole, is that... Is that, uh, did they leave out any major details or anything that they couldn't really show or anything like that? Um, not major details. I mean, that I recently saw the crime scene pictures again of, you know, exactly how my brother's body was positioned and where a certain plant was. And, you know, I remember once I ran up and I started screaming to my mom, is he dead? Is he dead? And she said, I don't know, Donna. I just screamed and I took off running. And I remember I ran to the front yard and I fell face down in the grass and I started screaming and screaming. And then I picked myself up and I said, you know, I got to get a grip. I got to help my mom. And so I went back and that's when, you know, the police, you could hear the helicopter down going around the neighborhood and the police cruisers were pulling up from every direction. And, um, but that's, that's the house that we lived in, and that's the house that they shot all the scenes in. That was the exact sink that my mother was working at when she looked out the window and saw this man um, exposing himself to the young kids that were playing in the street there. And I've driven back by there a few times when I've been back home, and it still brings up those incredible, strong memories of living through that. And we lived there another four or five years, I guess, 
after um, all this happened, before I got married and moved away. But, yeah, even to this day, it still brings up really strong emotions. Just sitting at the stop sign and looking across at the house and seeing the whole scene play out in my mind the exact way that they showed it on Unsolved Mysteries. Wow, yeah, so they they uh so they did shoot it at the exact location and everything. Yeah, that's that's yeah, what, they did. That's another thing that's cool about that show is because they always try to do that whenever they can. Um they do have to build sets and stuff sometimes, but yeah, they usually are able to shoot it um right where it happened. Um so I I read online, it's crazy like the kind of information you get online. Um it's it's like a it's like a Wikipedia page, but for unsolved mysteries uh, segments or whatever. Um, and, and it was saying that um, your mom did unfortunately pass away in 2012. She did, um, yeah. So how how was she for? I mean, for the longest time after the fact, after because I know Bell skipped out on bail two months after the murder, and he went on the run but was eventually captured, and they gave us an update about that on Unsolved Mysteries. Um, so after he was recaptured and everything, like, like, did your mother ever go back to a sense of normalcy and peace in her life, or, or did she kind of hold on to that? Oh, no, she absolutely um, was the strongest person that I've ever met. She was able, I mean, she had, I had three brothers, and me, and then she married a man who had three girls and a boy, and so we were all just like one big Brady Bunch family. But it was, oh, wow. yeah, it was kind of crazy back then. But um, she still had, you know, kids to raise and a, a job to do, and she and her strength and her faith in God is what got her through it all, and actually is what kept the family together and got all of us through it. Um, so she was able to go and put it behind her. I can remember she even taught a few classes at my high school my senior year because that happened right when school was getting ready to start for my senior year. And um, she was just an amazing woman. She really was. Yeah, she she came off as uh, her personality really shined through on the interview. She seemed like a very kind, you know, just genuine woman. and, And it makes you feel like all that much worse that some random you know, acts yeah. of extreme violence has to befall a family like that, you know, because it's right. like, geez, you know, like, how, how you know, who does that and happen? And she had already had so much tragedy in her life, and even as the years went on and on, there was more tragedy that befell our family. And one time I was sitting and talking with her, and I was asking her, Mom, why, why us? Why me? Why did all this happen? And she looked at me and she said, you know, I've asked that question before. I've asked God, why me, God? Why did you let this happen? And the clearest thing that came into my head was, why not me? You know, somebody else maybe would have fallen apart or turned to drugs or alcohol or even committed suicide. But with her ever-abiding faith in God, she was able to get through it. And this actually made her and our family stronger because we went through it together and we figured if we can get through that, we can get through anything. And, you know, you've heard people say that God won't ever give you more than you can handle. 
But that's not true. That's not written anywhere in the Bible or scrolls or anywhere. God always gives you more than you can handle. Otherwise, we wouldn't have any reason to run to him when we get into trouble. And she used that philosophy throughout her life and just was able to bring us all up with a sense of, you know, if we can get through this, we can get through anything. And we did, and we have, and we will continue to do so. Well, that's that's awesome. That's that's a fantastic perspective to have on something like that because, you know, you anybody in your family, had they started drinking or whatever to cope with that, it, it, nobody would have uh, questioned it. It would have been understandable given those kind exactly. of horrible circumstances. But, you know, the fact that you're able to kind of bounce back from something like that is... Uh, I mean, geez, I, you know, I, I obviously I've never, nothing like that has even come close to happening to me. So, I mean, you're a stronger person than I am. I know that much because, I mean. You know, I don't think any of us really know how strong we are until we're put in the situation to actually have to stand up and, and say, you know what, I'm not going to let this get me down because if I do, then the killer wins even more. He's already taken one life. He's not going to destroy another, and I'm going to get through this. That's true. Yeah, that's very true. Um, so, I also, again, online, <laughs> find any, everything on there. So, it's, it, I saw that um, Larry actually had a daughter. He did, Wendy. How's she doing these days? She's doing wonderful. Um, she lives... Not too far from where we lived at the time. She was only three years old when this happened, and now she's living in in Conroe, and she's got two daughters of her own, and she's just chugging along, and she turned out to be the most um, sweetest, funniest person that I think I've ever met. Is there is there any of uh, is there any of Larry's personality in there that you can see? All of it. All of it is right there in a big bundle of laughter. I can't be around her without tears streaming down my face from laughing so hard. She's (laughs) just one of the funniest people I've ever met, and she's incredible. Oh, that's that's fantastic to hear. Yeah. Yeah, see, this is, I don't know, like, ever ever since I've been talking to you, I'm, I'm like, feeling very um, encouraged and, and less sad about this case because how Unsolved Mysteries ends it, it, it leaves it leaves it on such a downer and uh, it, it's great to just hear that everybody's doing so well uh, you know relatively you know given right, yeah. the circumstances so that's I think that's really encouraging so what what brought you from Texas to uh, South Carolina like how'd you end up there oh I I fell in love with some old boy and got married. Ah, <laughs> uh, okay, I Yeah, I've never been happier in my life. I never thought I would leave Texas, but um, um, it's just completely changed my life around, and I've never been happier. And he has his own radio show, actually, as well. So, oh, really? um, I kind of know what you're going through with all that. So, yeah, South Carolina is not Texas, but it's the next best thing. Well, uh, you guys kind of do get. See, Florida, like we're we're right there, like on the uh, Atlantic. So anytime a hurricane comes through, and I live in Jacksonville, which is right by the coast. Anytime a hurricane comes through, it always acts like it's going to hit Jacksonville, and it goes nope, and then it goes right yeah. up to South Carolina every single time. <laughs> I feel so bad for for you guys because I'm just like, oh my gosh, yet another hurricane. 
that was heading yeah. straight towards us, and then it just curves up to South Carolina. I don't know how like, <laughs> close to the coast you live, but uh, yeah. It's We're like, very close to the coast, but, you know, it seems like all the ones that come by here aren't that terrible, so we haven't had any problems uh, for many, many years. Um, oh, now you didn't while, really... No, oh, you no, Matthew, you know, that that was a, a major rain event, but it, it didn't flood everything like everyone thought it was going to. It was more the rain and the flash flooding inland, not so much along the coast. Oh, okay. Yeah, that yeah. that actually that one actually did kind of hit us, and I didn't have power yeah. for like a whole week, but... Yeah. I mean, we hadn't had a good... We hadn't had like a good hurricane in a while, so, I mean, we were right. we were long overdue for one. Um, well, let me see here. I'm looking over my questions and, um, oh, um, did, uh, okay. So I posted on our Facebook group that I was chatting with you and for anyone to uh, ask questions if they had any, um, okay. and you kind of answered some already, but, uh, one person asked if you ever got to meet Matthew McConaughey when, uh, he played your brother, but you, you already answered that and you said that yeah. he was actually friends with your stepson, was it? Yes, he was. And um, they actually went to school together at University of Texas. And so when he was there that day, he came and ate lunch with the family and everything. And the resemblance is uncanny, how he looked and how my brother looked. It's just really that they picked the perfect person. Yeah, you know, it's funny because, like, you know, that – Hollywood and everything, they're always commenting on Matthew McConaughey's abs, you know, how he's got these yeah. these glistening abs. And I just thought it was kind of funny how his first acting role, of course, he's wearing some, like, denim vest with his glistening abs exposed. And it was just like, <laughs> man, is there any time he's not showing his abs in a movie or somewhere, you know? Like, it's just, I thought that was funny. Like, even his first acting role, that, that they had him do that or whatever. Yeah, um, exactly. I mean, when you've got something like that, you might as well put it, write it into the script, right? <laughs> yeah, so when you were talking to him, did you think like, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be a huge movie star for sure? No, actually, um, he was just a, a friend of my stepson's, and they, you know, they had hung out together a few times. That was the first time I had met him. But, you know, after seeing him play my brother, it wasn't one of those light bulb moments when you think he's going to be a, this great star. I was more concerned with, you know, the actors themselves playing the role in such a way that they would catch this guy, which is exactly what happened. Yeah, true. Yeah, so now he's living in Austin, I believe, with his family. And my kids are in Austin, too, so I get back there every once in a while. Um, somebody, one of our listeners, Morgan, she asked, um, was there a lot of aftermath, and were you and your family well-known for a long time, I guess, after this incident? Well, I, everyone knew about it. Pasadena back then was kind of a, a much smaller town, obviously, than it is now, and nothing like this had ever happened before. So um, I, I think people knew who we were. They had seen our pictures in the paper. There wasn't, of course, anything like computers or laptops or Facebook or anything back then, so it wasn't like it is now. But um, the aftermath was a little scary because the police came and once he posted bail and escaped, or, or was released, rather, once he posted bail and 
was released, we were under 24-hour protection because they thought he might try and come back and kill either me or my mom because we were the only witnesses. And so for weeks and weeks and weeks, we had police at our house all the time. And that was a little disconcerting. Um, you know, and it seems like as the years were on, if I would stop or pull up at a red light or something, I would see him. I would I would believe he was someone walking in the mall or that I just saw him. And it, it, it was kind of freaky the whole time. I was, you know, growing into a young woman. I kept thinking that I saw this man somewhere close to me. And he did come back to Texas a few times. But thank goodness um, he, he was never back to look for me or my mother. So that was kind of scary. And what, what's your theory on this guy? Do you think he was just uh, a psycho who had, like, a severe mental illness? Or do you think he was uh, just a pervert? Or, like, what, what's your like what's your theory on this guy, like, mentally? What's going on with him? Well, I, I do believe he suffers from schizophrenia and some other mental issues. He claims that he was used by the government and brainwashed and they forced him to go and kill these young girls and they forced him to do the other horrible things that he had done. But back then at the time when Unsolved Mysteries was going through this, he um, wasn't showing any signs of being a psycho except for the fact that he was, you know, exposing himself to all these kids on the street and that he killed my brother. Um, he was a wealthy businessman. He owned his own company down in Crystal Beach, and he had a family, and apparently he was well-respected. But whenever they captured him in his truck, he had thousands of dollars in cash. He had child pornography. He had boxes of ammunition and several guns. So he was out to do something that day. Nobody really knows what it was, but he was out to do something. Um so maybe my brother lost his life in order to keep this guy maybe from doing some other horrible act. You know, we never know. It's all speculation. Well, most definitely he would have continued doing something horrible had had that incident not escalated in him getting apprehended ultimately. Um, right. Now, whenever I was at the trial, after his trial... He had some family members there, and his brother was there. And his brother came up to me after the trial and just apologized on behalf of his family for everything that our family had gone through and just broke down in tears and said that um, his brother wasn't raised like that and he doesn't know what caused it and that he turned out normal and so he doesn't really know what happened to his brother to make him just go off the deep end like that. But apparently he had been off the deep end for um for many, many years doing a lot more horrible things than just killing my brother. Jeez. That's Yeah, you do gotta wonder about that, you know, like how did how did the how did the brother not turn out to be because you know schizophrenia, that that runs in that's like family genetics, you know. That's that's right. how it's influenced by genetics, you know. So, like, I have a friend who has schizophrenia, and her her brother has it as well. If she ever has kids, and there's a high chance that it could pass on to them, so that's that's so bizarre that he turned out so messed up, and the brother was, I guess, seemingly not that way. That must but have been. But see, hard. no one knew that that the killer 
was a serial killer until sometime in 2012, 2013, somewhere in there. Nobody knew that until I wrote him a letter in prison telling him about uh, the concept of forgiveness and that it was something that I lived my life by and that I, I wanted to share that with him and possibly, you know, I knew that he was getting older and such and that maybe he could find some kind of peace and forgiveness, but I wanted him to know that I forgave him and I wasn't holding on to that anger and that bitterness and rage anymore because that doesn't do anybody any good but eat you up inside. And if you ever go out for revenge against someone, you better dig two graves because you're going to need one too. So I had to learn early on to let go of all that. And after I wrote him the letter is when he started his confessions of being a serial killer. Now, so so you write him a letter in jail. When when did this happen? Did this happen like a few years after the after the incident with your brother, or was this like no, a decade? No, this didn't happen. This didn't happen until 2011. Oh, so from 1978 okay. until 2011, I wrote him a letter. So. So it, so in 2011, you finally contact this, or you write him a letter, right. and mm-hmm. after that, how how long did it take before he... I don't remember the exact dates of it. Um, I remember I wrote him the letter in September of 2011, and I believe it was in between October, November, and December that he started making these confessions. Oh wow! So he that that letter really got to him then. Yeah. So yeah, because I've I've been seeing some articles floating around about how there's like eleven other people that he is uh, police are interested in him about that he could have potentially been involved with. That's right. And and that and he that calls all- him the eleven that went to heaven. Yeah. Um, I, so. Please. He's actually, if you count my brother, he's actually killed 12. But those are just the 11 that he remembers. There could be more. Wow. So so your letter got, you know, even more answers for other families who didn't have answers necessarily for what happened to right. their kids or whatever, you know, like family members. Right. That's, hey, you know, I mean, that's, it's, it's an awful thing, but... I think you know, from watching a lot of these unsolved mysteries cases and just watching a lot of these true crime cases in general, it seems like even though these awful things do happen to family members, they just want answers. Like even if it's like a horrible answer that they're not going to like, uh, I think it's worse to be in the dark about something and not know what happened. Uh, That's true. You know, rather than knowing and at least you know all that. So so that. That's something, I guess, to be, uh, you know, I guess, thankful for to a certain extent. Um, yeah. You were really easy to talk to, by the way. I appreciate well, that. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Appreciate that. I think I, you answered all the questions that I had. Great. All right, Josh. Well, if you need to call me back any time, just give me a ring or send me a text or something, and we'll set up another time to chat. All right, Donna. Have a good rest of your night. Uh-huh. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. All right, guys, so that was the interview. Uh, again, she awesome woman. Uh, so happy that she talked to me. If you're listening to this, Donna, thank you so much for uh, giving me the time. And I know 100% that our listeners 
absolutely appreciate hearing from you and hearing uh, your side of everything that's happened. And um, I'm glad to hear that everything's going so well now. Um, that's the episode, guys. If you want to uh, add me and Mike on YouTube for even more entertaining content, Mike's YouTube channel is youtube.com slash OCP communications. And he does movie reviews and taste tests and uh, mainly movies. That's his big thing. He's a big movie guy, so he talks a lot about movies uh, when he's not dealing with copyright strikes. And my channel is youtube.com slash dancing with ghosts. And... Um, I do skits, I do uh, game reviews, I do taste tests. Uh, I do, man, my, my channel's like a bag of trail mix, so you get all kinds of uh, nutty things in there, cashews and almonds and stuff. Um, so yeah, that's the podcast for this week. I hope you guys all enjoyed it, and um, have a good rest of your day. See ya. What's up, guys? The new Dancing with Ghosts album that I have been working on is out now. You can buy it on iTunes or Bandcamp.com or anywhere else online where music is sold. Uh, If you go on Bandcamp, you can get a CD, a compact disc. Isn't that old school and retro of me? Remember those? Uh, Or you could just message me on Facebook and say, hey, I want a copy of your CD and I will mail it out to you. But uh, yeah, it's out now and it is it is finished and it's uh, some good stuff. So uh, if you want to go out and check that out, then uh, like I said, search iTunes anywhere else. uh, Music is sold online or go to Bandcamp.com and search Dancing with Ghosts. Thank you. Recording. Yeah, I've been recording, bitch. I've been recording. All right. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Fuck. Let me lay a towel down because my ass just sweats profusely <laughs> whenever I do TMI. these. TMI. <laughs> oh, it could, I could get so much more TMI than that, but I won't. Uh, I won't. Uh, uh, what is this, episode 55? Let me see. I can't drive 55 They're gonna ride me up for one Dude, I am so bad with lyrics Like, I can I can have listened to a song for 10 fucking years And not know the lyrics I, I, I do not memorize lyrics well at all I do I do okay If I'm uh, You know, if I'm listening to it in my ear but sometimes even then I kind of mess up. There's certain songs I know pretty well, but I have to like listen to the song again to really refresh my memory. All right. Um, I remember bits and pieces of songs. I I don't really usually remember the entire song. Sometimes I do though, because I've listened to it constantly. That's the only reason why. 
stuff in the Top Gun soundtrack I know pretty well. I listen <laughs> I listen to it the stuff constantly, but like I, I'm listening to the melody and the music and stuff. Playing, I'm not listening to the, with um, the boys. I'm not listening to the actual lyrics unless I make. Staying, God damn it, Mike! I'll kill you. Boss. I'm gonna kill you. <laughs> Uh, uh, uh. Man, I haven't the 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 tropes of the of our podcast haven't been done in a while. The skeptic whistle hasn't been blown in a while, and I haven't done Beavis and Butthead in a while, man. Just like I, I, we don't have the skeptic whistle for here. I mean, because there's a guy who thinks that Miller Earhart didn't, you know, get shot by some Japanese soldiers and dumped in a ditch. But um, that's not really a skeptic. It's just a guy who has a different theory. Aren't we doing the Golf Breeze one next week? You want to do that one next week? Yeah, because we're gonna okay. we're gonna need some razzle dazzle to keep this uh, little this little spree going that we got going on. Yeah, no problem. People are like, "What Golf Breeze UFO?" <laughs> yeah, tur- did you find that? Turns out it was just a Golf Breeze between my ass because it was fake. <laughs> Although I, I find it kind of crazy, though, I, there is a little bit to be said about it. The the fact that you have all these people, thirty different people in the small town, who say they saw it. So I mean that that seems a bit much for me personally to to totally buy that all of it is. Flu jagu 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 flu jagu jagu jugen. Is that the German translation of the insult, Mister? No, it's the Swedish version. Get it right, Mike. I'm. <laughs> hey guys, I'm PewDiePie, and for some fucked up reason, I have three million billion subscribers, and I'm not even funny, and I don't do anything interesting. I just yell with this ridiculous accent. <laughs> All right, let's get this show on the road. <laughs> <laughs> that was not a very good Swedish accent. That's how he talks. Uh, now I'm gonna do like a southern thing. That's how. That's he... what I said. It sounds southern. Well, it's like a southern Swedish. I'm trying. Southern I'm trying to add nuance because because to to do a Swedish accent, you got to start with the chef from the Muppet Bay. The Ferndes Carnda Herd. Yeah, yeah. The Muppet. You got yeah, to start, start with, with him, the, but then you got to dial it. The Swedish. Then you got to dial it back a little bit. So so the dialing back can sometimes lead into southern accent territory if I'm not careful. So you got to be like Abba. Because I think they're from Sweden. If right? you change your mind, I'll be first in line, honey. I'm- this is not a good. Uh, this is not a good like indication of how I am as a singer. Because uh, <laughs> I I'm fucking around right yeah. now. I know what that's like. Okay, so here we go. All right. Maybe we need to do an edit here. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Well, maybe now I will. <laughs> it's a pretty gnarly sneeze. <laughs> I'm apparently allergic to everything. <laughs> I've been wanting to uh, do this for a while, sneeze, but I just haven't. I've just been like trying to hold it in, so now I'm just letting loose. <laughs> Definitely mark that down for an edit. Okay. You can read up at Therefore if you want. You start there if you want. Therefore. Right, all right, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> mark it down for an edit. <laughs> 55, 24. Did you mark the other one down? Yep.
I might as well take a piss since I'm editing. Be right back. <laughs> the boys are back! The boys are back! What? The boys are back down. And they're looking for trouble. Is it a different song? <laughs> yeah, it's um, Dropkick Murphys, I think. Okay, I'm just thinking about the boys are back. The boys are back in town. The boys are back in town. Bon Jovi did a cover. I remember Bon Jovi's cover more than the actual song because I grew up with the movie Navy Seals and the soundtrack. Bon Jovi's got to be one of the worst bands ever. I... I fucking hate Bon Jovi with a with a. Uh, you hate Bon Jovi because of the karaoke. Yeah, thing. yeah, you might be right about that. You might be, you may be right. Oh, you may be crazy. You may be, just be the lunatic that I'm looking for. Um, you may be right. That's another guy I don't care for, but he's okay. You don't, you, you don't like. You don't like Billy Joel. Billy Joel's all right. We didn't start the fire. I like that song, uh, "Matter of Trust." That's probably one that one of his songs that's more my favorite one. That's a pretty good one. Some night like it's just a matter of some. Yeah, that didn't sound anything like. I don't know what the fuck that was. I was just singing. <laughs> that right. sounded like Michael McDonald. Yeah. Creep, forget we're not in love anymore. I keep <laughs> forget the things will never be the same again. He's got that just strange voice that, you know, I eat a lot of cheese because it helps me see. <laughs> I remember my friend Thad, uh, he's this black guy, and he comes up to my karaoke gigs, and he told me one time, he goes, Yo, man, black people like Michael McDonald. He's a bad motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> He's like he's like they inducted Michael McDonald. He was it was like some soul hall of fame or something that's mainly like black people but but Michael McDonald's like the one, like one of the only white guys in there or something. Oh my I god. I thought that, that shit was great. funny. Yeah. That is hilarious. Black people like Michael McDonald, man. <laughs> I just I found that I, I love how he was speaking for all black people, you know. Like I thought that was funny. So anyway, uh here we have something from CNN. A newly discovered photo that claimed to hold the key to the 80-year-old mystery surrounding Amelia Earhart's disappearance may have been published two years before she was vanished. She, before she vanished, new evidence suggests. The blurry photo, used in a History Channel documentary, was alleged to show the groundbreaking pilot and her navigator Fred Noonan alive and well on a dock in the Marshall Islands in 1937. The bloggers say the photo was originally... Actually, okay, this is different. Uh, damn it. Let me just start over. I fucked up. Uh, do, All right. do we need to edit that? Yes. <laughs> God fucking damn it. One eleven twenty six. Mike fucks up a read. I'm only human. I'm only human! <laughs> I gotta sing that every time now. I hate that song right. so much. Somebody find the name of that song and tell me what it is and listen to how bad it is. <laughs> The book is shown in a digital photo in Japan's National Diet Library. Why is it called Diet? I don't, that's, my brain can't process that. 
It's a weird place the to country, put it. Yeah, the country's largest collection of books. The site says it is from Shawa 10, the 10th year of the Shawa Emperor, also known as 1935. Hey, hold on a second. One of the blunders. knocking at my fucking door. The lawnmower man. Oh Run. god, it never <laughs> fucking ends. <laughs> Give me my money. Give me my money. The grass is too long. Okay, this was a positive knock. It's my shit from Amazon. Okay, cool. Okay, do you know where you were? Well, One thirteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. God damn it, dude. <laughs> what the? Is this a record? Fuck? Just coming in all in like a big flurry. At least people have extra, plenty of extra B-roll footage to listen to today or this week or whatever. 